here's the thing. Insight is beautiful and wonderful and good, but it doesn't tend to change behavior or distress. So we might know what our traumas are or know why we do stuff. You know why you go into the closet, but does that stop you going into the closet? Not necessarily. So getting to what we call like core or touchstone memories, and then we reprocess those with EMDR therapy in order to, like I said earlier, what we're really doing is we're taking the distress away. You're still going to remember it, but you're not going to have that feeling in your stomach or feel like you want to throw up or have those big, strong emotions come up. And that's what got me hooked. It's the only type of therapy that I've done as a clinician that does that. Hi, I'm Casey, and right here beside me is Kelsey. We are licensed professional counselors, mothers, entrepreneurs, oh, and besties. We know firsthand what it's like to wake up one day and think, how in the heck did I wind up here? Through our own journeys of self-discovery, we found that joy is something that has to be pursued through our own internal work. Now we are on a mission to help women from all walks of life understand themselves more so they can experience real lasting joy. Join us every Thursday to hear interviews with experts who can point you towards self-discovery and inner joy. You're going to put me on the spot. You want to start the podcast? Um, nice. Rachel, uh, <laughs> welcome. <laughs> Thanks. I'm so glad to be here. So tell us a little bit about trauma and your experience with that. Where'd you? That's a huge question. That's a good way to put her on the spot. Right? I love it. In all seriousness, I think... As I look back on my career and my choice to become a therapist, it was really all about having my own trauma that I was searching for answers for. And so about mm, 10 years into being a therapist, I got trained in EMDR therapy. And that really kind of changed my lens of everything because I had seen over those 10 years as I was working with clients with all kinds of different things coming up for them, it often came down to some pretty significant events in their history. And I would call these events trauma. Now, I think some people get a little squirmish when we come to the word trauma. Like it can be a little bit like I don't want to say that I have trauma or trauma is somebody living through a hurricane right? But it's not necessarily the person who talks to me and puts me down all the time. And so I think what I realized is people all had trauma that was really the root of a lot of their mental health symptoms. And that was myself included. I did my own EMDR therapy actually before getting trained in EMDR, and it really changed everything for me. So it really kept that trauma from having a hold on me. So that's kind of how I fell in love with trauma. And then working with clients specifically in that venue, when I opened my practice, the group practice here in Maryland in 2016, I was sitting there with that LLC you know, application that you have to submit. And I was like, I really want to call this trauma specialist. But at the time, no one was calling themselves anything like that. It was like, you know, such and such family therapy or such and such and associates. And I just said, but this is what I love and this is what I want to do. So I kind of took the leap of faith and it's just kind of blossomed from there. And now I feel like there's a lot of people talking about trauma thanks to the ACEs questionnaire and things like that. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts after what you just said. I guess the first thing that I'm curious about is just speaking from 
the opposite experience. So, I mean, of course, we all do have trauma, whether we see it as trauma or call it trauma in our own lives or not. But you said that you you went deeper into this work because you were searching for answers based on your own history and your own trauma. And I think that's interesting because I feel like so many people are doing the opposite, like they're running from it or they're avoiding it or trying to stay away from it. Mm. What was it about you that really made you want to understand and heal? I think I'm a why person. You know, I find myself, even with my kids, I'm always explaining why I'm saying something. And I think that's because I have that need to know why. And so I think that was exactly what turned me into being curious about going deeper for myself. And then for other people, I, as a therapist, I have a hard time not diving in deeper. That's like my Achilles heel. I like going to a party, going out for drinks with people. I can chit chat. But I really like to go deeper. That's just like my natural tendency. I know it's totally Kelsey too. (laughs) I know. Yeah. Maybe that is a lot to do with it too, because I'm the opposite of that. Like Mm. people are trying to tell me something and I'm like, oh my gosh, did you know that (laughs) you tried um, this bar's old fashioned? It's amazing. (laughs) Mm. I don't know. Maybe that's. You've gotten better about that. Yeah, I mean, I know, but that's it's just uh, it's uncomfortable for me to sit with other people's trauma and uncomfortableness and so mm-hmm. that I'm an avoider when it comes to when it comes to that. Yeah. Rachel, I have a question. So, were you therapist first and then you went to therapy or how did that work? Well, I was in therapy long before I became a therapist, but not EMDR therapy. So my EMDR therapy happened after I was a therapist. Was there, I mean, you don't have to go into detail, but was there a moment in time where you were like, maybe I should try EMDR or did somebody push you toward that direction? It was actually the therapist that I was seeing at the time. I had heard about EMDR And I had kind of restarted therapy and the therapist that I found suggested it. And I was like, yeah, I'll definitely try that. So what was it about EMDR that appealed to you? In all honesty, it kind of scared me. But the the part that appealed to me was that this could potentially sort of release the trauma in a way like like the way I explain EMDR to people. It's that it's not going to take your memory away in any way. But what it does is it decreases that body and emotional response when you have the memory. And so that was definitely the appeal for me. Like I would love to have that yuck not come up when I think about things that happened to me. And so that was the draw. And I'll never forget when I got to the actual session where we were doing a big T trauma, as we talk about it in my life, I just felt like I was I was backpedaling. I was doing some of Casey's avoidance stuff. Like I was like, um, I don't know. I mean, do we really want to do this? Definitely. It's it's the fear of the unknown. I'm not sure what I'm doing. Fear of facing these things, even though EMDR tries to make that as easy as possible. Facing trauma is never easy. It just isn't. It's work. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the the things for me that that I struggled with, and 
I don't know about other people and I wonder if EMDR would be something that would help. But as I was working on my book and I was trying to remember things, I had so many memory blocks. Like I, Mm -hmm. I just could not remember like I couldn't remember, I didn't have very many memories at all with my mother. I didn't remember anything hardly at all before I was nine. So I just go ahead, say it. Well, now you're giving me that look. Yeah. I would ask Casey questions about like early childhood, just out of curiosity. And she would be like, I don't know. I I don't know. But then we would be driving in the car like a year later or something and talking about something so small. And she's like, oh my gosh, I remember, you know, this time with my mom and this is what I was doing. And it it was really interesting just how she had no recollection. And then there was these little moments of time that were coming up for her and she was just speaking them out loud and then more stuff would come up. Well, so what causes that? Like what causes- I know, I'm like ready to jump on this. This is so (laughs) great. I love this question because here's the, the thing. Our brains are always choosing for us how to protect us essentially, right? So your brain, Casey, chose to protect you from the memories before you were nine in general. And it kind of buried them and locked away the key so that when you just said what happened when I was seven in this general way, you were like, I don't know what happened when I was seven. It's all hidden from me on purpose to protect you. But then the way that our brains store memories, they store them in what we call memory networks. And I use the metaphor when I'm training this of like a cluster of grapes. So all of these memories are kind of connected together by different themes. And so when something pokes one of those memories or pricks that for you, suddenly you're in that memory network and you can recall all those things again. But otherwise, it might be locked away. And a lot of our traumas are locked away on purpose. We call that dissociation of memory because we know that it would be too painful for us to think about those all the time. And our brain just chooses that for us. It's not anything wrong with us. It's a protective mechanism. But if a lot of those build up, we have a lot of hidden memories, then it can leak out in other ways. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. The memory networks in particular, because that's exactly what would happen for me. Mm -hmm. Like something would would be like the breakthrough. And then I would start remembering all the things, all the things that connected that, which then made everything make a lot more sense. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's why I do this. Or that's why I choose this. Or yeah. The funniest thing is I would track Casey's behavior and I would like spit it back out to her. And I'm like, you know, why do you go in the closet when you're sad? And she's like, don't call me out like that. But then mm. she start thinking about it and she'd be like, oh, like this is something that I've done for a really long time. This is where it comes from. And so it would be like these, I would pick up on something that I was like, wait, like this doesn't align. Like something's going on here. Yeah. Kelsey would find me in the closet. Like if I was like very um, overstimulated or just really upset or whatever. And I have, I had no idea why I was in the freaking closet. Like that's just where I would go. Something I would just beeline straight to the Mm -hmm. closet. And the more that we started talking about that and like trying to understand that, I mean, I remembered these early moments of my life whenever I would hide. 
in the closet to escape whatever was going on. And so that kind of became like the little, the safe place. So anything that's dark and small, Hmm. that's where I would feel comfortable. You know, I haven't hidden in the closet in a long time. Long time, probably about. Yay! Yay! I'm I'm out of the closet. <laughs> That's great, Casey. I'm proud of you. <laughs> but you know, it just like it made me wonder how many other people have these things that they do, mm-hmm. and they don't even know why they do it. Mm-hmm. But it, oh, there's, yeah. there's probably a, a reason, a memory that they're that they don't necessarily. It's not like right here. And so we call that implicit versus explicit memory in like neuroscience. So explicit memories are the things that we can easily recall that have language and narrative and all those things. Implicit memories are kind of like below the surface. If you think of like an iceberg, right? Those, they're all the things that are under the water and we don't have easy access to them, but something might happen and it provokes an emotion. And we're like, why am I even crying right now? I don't even know. That's a sign of like an implicit memory. And those are what drive us. So what do you do? Well, I mean, so in EMDR therapy, we can access those. And Kelsey knows how to do this because she went through the training. It's awesome to have her. We, we have techniques where we help you get into those memory networks and help you sort of uncover what's there. And then not just to find it, because here's the thing. Insight is beautiful and wonderful and good, but it doesn't tend to change behavior or distress. So we might know what our traumas are or know why we do stuff. You know why you go into the closet, but does that stop you going into the closet? Not necessarily. So getting to what we call like core or touchstone memories, and then we reprocess those with EMDR therapy in order to, like I said earlier, what we're really doing is we're taking the distress away. You're still going to remember it, but you're not going to have that feeling in your stomach or feel like you want to throw up or have those big, strong emotions come up. And that's what got me hooked. It's the only type of therapy that I've done as a clinician that does that. I like talk therapy just like everybody else, teaching skills, all those psychoeducation, those things are all fantastic, but EMDR takes it to another level and then the healing is kind of to another level. I sort of liken it to a surgeon versus like do like if you if you have an injury and somebody bandages you up, that's what a lot of therapy is doing. It's providing a bandage for things, but at some point we might have to dig into that wound to really heal it. It's more like surgery. And that's kind of what I think EMDR is like. I have a lot of clients who are like, I'm not sure that I want to go there. Their biggest fear is like gaining insight, but then not knowing what to do with that. Right. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. opening the wound. Yeah. Yes. And that's legitimate. We're all afraid to go to those big feelings that we don't want to feel. And feeling them is part of what how we heal. If you think about it, When we have a big cry or a big emotion, emotions have that really nice wave to them, right? What goes up first, which is the part we really don't want to do, but then it will resolve. And that's how our brains and our bodies are designed to heal. So that fear of the emotion is sometimes what we have to work on a little bit before diving into doing EMDR therapy because big feelings can come up, body sensations can come up, and it's difficult and scary. But what I know from years and years of doing this is it will resolve. It will just be a wave. 
and it will get better. Yeah. When you're saying that, it it makes me think about one of the first things that I noticed about myself was not necessarily like these traumatic memories or anything like that. It was the feeling in my body. Mm-hmm. Noticing this constant just anxiousness, like this tight, it was tight. Like I was just, you know what I mean? I don't, I don't know. Yes, I do. But I noticed that. And I'm in the first time that I ever just like had this relief from that feeling. I knew that that feeling was not normal. Mm. And, but I did not know that that feeling was not normal until I experienced a little bit of like that breath of, of release, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. And so Mm -hmm. I don't know, I think a lot of us, especially, you know, the way I was growing up, we weren't taught to listen to our bodies and yes. Yeah. And, and so that was really hard and, and just being aware of what's going on in your body and knowing that there is help for that. And that doesn't Mm -hmm. have to be that way. And I believe our bodies are talking to us like we can, you know, we can take our thoughts and we can spin it and turn it and we can do all kinds of manipulation with our thoughts and even some to some degree our feelings, but our bodies don't lie. Whatever is there, our body is trying to tell us something. If we can learn how to pay attention to it, I agree. We are not taught to do that. I was certainly not taught to do that growing up, but I think when we can do that, that's when we can really start to live a life that is congruent to who we are fully. Yeah, I agree. What part of your body did you feel it in? You know? Um, yeah. So like I hold a lot of tension in my neck and shoulders. So mm-hmm. I definitely felt it there. That was easy. But I also am like my youngest daughter and it, it goes to my stomach. Mm-hmm. And so like it was just this... I don't know. I mean, is that what you were thinking? Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. I, I think our bodies tell us a lot. I, I didn't it's... even realize I had anxiety until I had some body awareness. And I was like, oh, mm. like, yeah, like my fingers are tingling, like my elbow to my fingers. It's really rough. Yeah, Kelsey, I, I would have never guessed her as a anxious person until I got to know her a lot more. But she is so anxious, like hmm. so, so, so super anxious. Like she's like dying right now. I can tell. Well, I do pretty well in like social settings. Like I don't think to the eye people would know. No. There are things like I'm like, oh. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, I think that's part of it. Like you just, you hold it differently than me. And like, it's funny because there's things that she minimizes. hmm that I'm like, no, that's a big deal. Like that is not, <laughs> no, like that is a big deal and and vice versa. And so I think also one of the reasons that we wanted to do this podcast was because in my experience, and I know in hers, because we've had these conversations, if we would have just had someone that we trusted that we could confide in and just have these conversations out loud for someone to say, Hey, that's not how that's supposed to feel. The change probably would have come a lot sooner. I mean, I just held it all in and never said a word to anybody. So of course it's Mm. its own uh, mind like, Oh, this is normal. This is, you know, (laughs) you. 
Yeah. Yeah. Tell on yourself. I was, no, I'm thinking about something different. Oh, what are you thinking about? I was thinking about coming home and trying to explain the grapes to Casey, but I was like, Casey, I learned something really cool. Like this makes total sense. Also, also she is a terrible explainer of things. Like what? Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. But she asks really good questions. Okay. That's what I learned about Kelsey in the training. She's really processing the information. Yes. She gets super nervous though, when she has to communicate it back out. And so like her brain understands it, but then I think she gets nervous about how it sounds. And then, so she just like cuts it super short. And so she doesn't actually, Mm. but she came home and she was like, yeah, I learned about grapes and, and they're, you know, they're all like on a vine and I'm like, well, what color are they? I'm like, well, are they green grapes or are they purple grapes? I'm curious now. I mean, we got nowhere from this conference. I had no idea that grapes were memory networks. Oh, yeah. I was just so excited. I didn't know how to explain it. All I knew is that it didn't matter what color they were. They were just grapes and they were on a vine. And memories. And memories. That's it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It was the start. She set you up. Yeah, I think that's really cool. And that does make a lot of sense because when you get, when you remember the, it's like that one thing, that Mm -hmm. one little thing that then opens it all up. And that's exactly what I'm talking about in this book. But now I have the language. So now can I just like quote you and say that? Of course. Okay. Yeah. And, And the crazy thing about it is, and this is what I love, is that our brains know what we need to heal. So really EMDR is about your therapist helping you set things up and then we literally follow the brain. So the brain takes us to the memories it needs, the thoughts it needs, the feelings it needs, all of it. It's just the coolest thing. And I like that because I think this idea that a therapist has all the answers and is just sitting there to help the client I really just don't subscribe to that type of healing. I love being able to say, I am here to simply facilitate and your brain is going to take us where we need to go. Your healing is going to happen inside of you. You already have what you need to heal. I'm just here to facilitate the process. How do clients respond to that? Well, it depends on the client. For some people, that's a relief. Are are there some people like, oh, that's a little woo-woo? Yeah, some people are. But once we start it, then they see. And I think for some people, it's also scary to follow their own brain. Yeah, that would be scary, I think. It takes a lot of intention and trusting your own self. Yeah. 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 Well, and I'd say that's where it helps to have that therapist is just Mm. for that encouragement. Like, yes, this is, you know, you're doing a lot of coaching in those moments. So I could see how how that's helpful. I really want to do EMDR. That's one therapy I have not done. But since we do have you on here and we have a couple of minutes, I, I do want to ask you one more thing. Okay, please. Yeah. So I've become really fond of attachment and mm. very curious about attachment. So I'm just wondering, do you see any kind of pattern of like the types of trauma and the kind of work that you're doing with clients? matched up with their attachment style or do you, do you notice anything that's interesting there? 
Oh my goodness. This is another one of those really big questions that I could go, I could go to a lot of places with. So let's, so, so here's the thing with attachment and, and you may or may not know this, but just to like set some ground for us, attachment really happens from ages zero to three. If we are fortunate enough to have a a good enough caregiver that responds to our needs, that is where our attachment develops, ideally a secure attachment. And we learn that, wow, if we're hungry, we cry and somebody meets that need and then we feel better and it develops this idea of trusting people. But for a lot of people, they don't have that response, unfortunately, to their needs. Think how vulnerable we are from ages zero to three, right? And so that's where some of those attachment, I would call them wounds happen. And then we tend, as we know, as we get older, to be attracted sometimes to the kind of people that also wounded us in our past. And so then those wounds just progress and progress. And we get things like anxious attachment and avoidant attachment and all of those things. And so I think the pattern that I would say that I see there is just that I think we all can benefit from being really honest about whether or not our needs were met. And there are so many levels to that. It's not just about, well, my parents took care of me, they fed me, they clothed me, that should be enough. There's also this emotional realm to attachment. So you can have a parent that taught you to dismiss all of your emotions, for example, and that's going to create an attachment wound. Or you can have a parent that's enmeshed with you and that teaches you that there is no sense of self. You're not your own person. You only exist for the benefit of another person and that's an attachment wound. So there are so many layers to this. I feel like it gets very simplified in popular media. But these wounds, I think, are some of our deepest, and we don't tend to think of them as traumatic because they're all these little interactions that happened over time. But in my experience in treating people, if we can get to all of those wounds, even though they seem like small little things, that can be what really unlocks and shifts the ability to choose healthier relationships and things like that. So it's a long-winded answer to your question. Well, this could be its own podcast. Yeah. And as you were talking about that, I just like had memory. I just had an epiphany, which I won't go into, but that'll be for another day. When You're I was going to leave everybody hanging? Well, yeah. Why don't you just say it? Okay. So this isn't the epiphany, but when I was in therapy a couple of years ago, I started therapy and my therapist just kept asking me about growing up in childhood and just mm. all these little, like she wanted to know all these little conversations. And I was just like, what are we doing? Just like, tell me what I need to do so I can mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, I don't want to talk about all this little stuff. I really didn't know where she was going with it. And then it was like, I just blurted something out. And she said, she said something to me, which made perfect sense at the time, but She's like, when, when you're taught to believe that your feelings don't matter, you stop having them. You know, it's not, it's not that you stop having them, but like mm. you, you kind of stop having them. Mm-hmm. Um, you just, you believe your own feelings don't matter. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's like my way of coping, I guess, was just to believe that I didn't really, everything was fine. But my epiphany, when you were saying that, So when my parents were, I don't ever remember my parents being 
married or together. Mm. It wasn't until I started really asking my mom questions about a year ago that I I learned some things about their relationship and probably why I didn't remember much before. But my mother was, she was a single parent and I two siblings, um, much older than me. But, you know, there were times where she worked three jobs, like super busy. She, we were, we didn't have much money, but she made sure all my needs were met, like worked really hard, not an emotional, like not a physical, affectionate, loving kind of person, but just like what, whatever you need, I'll make sure. When you were saying that, I was like, holy shit. Like the only affection that I remember getting from my mom, physical, uh, like touch or affection was when I was sick. Mm-hmm. And so I remember her touching me is she would put her hand on my stomach because I would get stomach aches and I would ask her to hold my stomach and she would. Mm-hmm. And so as an adult, I think I've carried over into <laughs> no way, <laughs> but like that is how I received love or like physical affection. That was the only way is if I was sick. And Mm. so I think that that was definitely an attachment thing because I did not experience that. And those were just little things that carried over into my adult life and like how that presented itself in relationships and Mm. feeling like if I wasn't needing something physically, I wasn't going to get attention that I needed or, or love, or that's how I know someone loves me is that they take care of me when I'm sick. Oh yeah. Yeah. If Casey is sick, she does require a little bit more attention and she will call me straight out if she is sick. Can you tell Rachel just a little bit about creating this awareness around your mom's mental health issues and how that's kind of brought you closer? Like you, you created this awareness uh, and started asking your mom questions and all the things. And you were like, no, some of the things weren't necessarily the best for my childhood, but I did. She was doing her best. Yeah. I think that I, like a lot of us, I was, what were we watching? Lucifer or something last night? I don't know. I was, mm-hmm. I was sick. But oh. <laughs> I, was, I heard someone on the show say, you know, we all end up becoming our parents in one way or the other. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I started noticing certain sides of myself that was becoming a lot like my mom and not in the way that I wanted to be and probably not in the way that she was proud of. And so I started paying a lot of attention to that and asking her a lot of questions about what was it like during, you know, when you were, when you were married to my dad and what was it like when you were growing up and like, how did, how did you respond? And, you know, she, she suffered a lot. I think, I think she probably suffered a lot from postpartum when she had me. And then she was in a very unhealthy, toxic, abusive relationship. Mm -hmm. And it just caused her to detach from, I think, parenthood and life. And she struggled a lot with depression and didn't, you know, she's 70, 73 almost next in July. And back then, like, I remember her telling me that she reached out for help and just said like, look, I just really need some, I need some support. And, and people laughed at her and called her Mm. crazy and made fun of her. And it like helped me understand where she was coming from a, yeah. a little more. And it it helped me understand my own parenting and like some of the things that I was doing 
in the way of repeating history with my own children, I could uh, like it brought more awareness to that. And I was able to change that in the same way that I think she would have wished someone could have helped her Mm -hmm. do when I was little. Rachel, can you, I think you might know the answer to this question, but some people are really, they feel like if they open all those attachment wounds, they're going to have this hatred towards their parental figure or, you know, maybe somebody who did them wrong. But do sometimes you see people, I don't know, not that they're showing grace to somebody else, but they're acknowledging their wounds and kind of understanding where somebody else is coming from. Definitely. And I, I think that can be a barrier for people who will say things like, I, I don't want to hate my parent or I don't want to think bad things about them. But I think we just have to get real with whatever is there is there. We're only playing those mind games with ourselves if we're trying to avoid the pieces. And what I find happen more often than not is when we can open that up and let ourselves feel how we feel and process through that, that always leads us to more information, which almost always leads us to more compassion. And when we have compassion for ourselves and let us feel the feelings of what it was like to be a child in that situation, that then often allows us to have compassion for our parents in whatever situation they found themselves in when they were parenting us and doing the best they could. I love that word, compassion. I'm so happy with this conversation. And I think that that's spot on because the more that I remembered, the less, I don't, I don't even know the word, but it didn't make me hate my family or hate my friends or, you know, it didn't make things not happen at all. It, if, like you said, if anything, it helped me understand where they were coming from in my situation, it gave me a lot more empathy for my mom, which helped then helped us to be able to rebuild a better relationship. Yeah. That was always a good thing. Well, I mean, Rachel, you certainly did not disappoint. I love all of your wisdom. I would love to send you the advanced reader copy of my book. And I would love it if you would just comment on clinical things like the grapes. And then I would love to be able to reference your practice and all of the work that you're doing in the book. That would be amazing. Awesome. Happy to. Any final thoughts, Kelsey? No, I'm just excited to see Rachel again. She's like, give me all the trauma. I love to learn. I like to learn. (laughs) I know. Casey or Kelsey, excuse me, you are a great fit for um, EMDR. There's no doubt about that. My clients are really having a great time with it. So Mm -hmm. it comes naturally to her. I think just. Some people you could just tell. I, even before I knew what EMDR was, I really had this, like the way my brain works about trauma, it, it really aligns with EMDR. And I can remember being 15 and having these thoughts about small things and big things and all the things, all the things. things. Well, thank you for joining us and we will get you back on here for a part two, because this was good. Sounds awesome. Looking forward to it. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying our podcast and would like to hear more from us, leave us a review wherever you get your podcast so we can keep making great content like this. 